show, we've got a special guest, White Panda, calling in from somewhere in Chicago. White Panda, welcome to the Make Them Notice podcast. You've got Daniel here. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you having me. So what uh, what have you been up to the last uh, last few weeks? You've been on tour, making new music. What's been going on? It's been a busy summer. It's a lot of, uh, a lot of getting ready for the fall. Uh, you know, I just did a major rebrand and uh, released my debut original single um, and hoping to follow that up with a bunch uh, more sort of fun, uplifting, smash singles leading into the fall with a big tour. So I've really been focusing on the music and laying the groundwork for, for all that coming up in the next few months. Awesome, awesome. So I think a lot of people are curious about um, what like an average day is like. I'm sure everyone sees your your stage presence and when you're performing, but when you're kind of stepping away from music, what's like an average day like for you? Uh, it really depends. I mean, I it's almost like the word average doesn't even really apply, you know, because when you're on the road or when you're doing festivals, you can be sleeping in, getting up, heading to a a sound check, hopping from van to van, and you know, having drinks backstage, meeting people, performing a show, going out, celebrating, or maybe you're back at the airport on the way to the next gig um, versus, you know, a little more downtime might be a studio day or studio night, a couple vocal sessions. Um, just it can be as, as boring as sitting in front of the computer and dabbling around with a track that I've been working on for months, or it can be as exciting as playing two different shows and being in three different states and all over the place. So it, uh, it keeps you on your toes. So average isn't really in your vocabulary then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, a, not a word I would generally use to describe the, the lifestyle. I hear you. I hear you. So you mentioned being dabbling in front of the computer, kind of working on a song. Um, and I know you just released this, kind of your first single. How long did that take to create? The single itself, probably a few months, but it's more the amount of trial and error that it took to get to that single, the amount of ideas and sessions and um, things that we got, you know, it would take halfway to the finish line and then decide to abandon. So it's been a multi-year process getting ready for the original debut. Um, but this particular track, you know, the better part of 2018, for sure, it's been wow. in the works. Wow. So let's go back. You said it's a, been a multi-year process. Let's let's go back a little bit to uh, to Young Panda. What um wh- what's like the origin backstory for you? Where did where did your love for music? Where did all that start from? Well, I was classically trained in piano since I was about seven years old. So music was always a big part of my life. Um, I wrote and recorded music in high school. wasn't any good, but uh, <laughs> I did it anyway. And, you know, taught myself to play drums and guitar and obviously was, was knew how to do piano from lessons and would make every school project I could music related. If there was any chance to bring in multimedia, um, it was a huge part of my life. And then I started making more party music initially um, in the form of mashups during college as a way to just throw on tunes during, you know, parties we were hosting and a way to pass time. And it was just a nice combination of my hobbies and also social life in school and uh it picked up towards the end of school i started getting some traction on some of the stuff i was posting online um and ultimately it had enough going for it that i decided it was worth trying to make a a little run out of and uh yeah that was that's how it got started and i hit the ground running right out of college 
Do, do you remember the first two like mashup tracks you ever did? One was called Bittersweet Porcelain Girls. I don't think I ever released it, but it was a, a mat. It was between Sean Kingston, Beautiful Girls, oh, wow. and uh, Porcelain by, Mo- by Moby. That is a throwback. Um, I remember that one. And then uh, I think the other one was, the, the other one actually did see the light of day eventually, which was uh, Sutton Like My Energy, which I believe was Cherry Hills. In Bang Song Energy and it mixed it with something like my daddy, Lil Wayne. <laughs> and that one actually stuck around for a long time. I've, I've played that um, live as recently as a couple of years ago. So that one has stood the test of time a little bit. Not so much the Sean Kingston one. <laughs> and then when you were starting, were you doing this all through a computer or were you actually mashing up live and then recording it? Uh, it was all in a static computer session. Mm-hmm. It's, it takes so much trial and error to get like, you know, the well beyond anything, the you know the the tone and the tempo, but also just like the cadence of the music and the way that, um, you know, I'm not thinking of the right word right now, but it's just like syncopation, rhythm, and all these right. things. It takes so much. It's so nuanced, and you have to go through and find something that works so well that it's near impossible to kind of do it on the fly. And and how much did your classical training contribute to all of that? Oh, a ton. I don't think I even would have known the word syncopation if it weren't for <laughs> the classical training, much less what it was. So, like, you know, and bringing in harmonies and really just, uh, more than anything, it's just training your ear, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people that are completely not trained have fantastic ears, but there's something about being able to, like, hear a piece of music and know, oh, okay, this is going to resonate on a really large scale. Um, is part of what it takes to be able to, you know, establish a fan base and get people to start listening to what what uh, you're putting out. Yeah, it's interesting. We had uh, Justin Jesso on the podcast, who um, is kind of how we got connected. But he was talking as well with Kygo and how much of his piano training contributed as well to his music production. And so it's it's interesting to see people who start off and you know thinking maybe their life will go one way, then using that skill to translate it into a whole different, you know, new, new life, new chapter to begin with. So I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I think piano and drums are probably the two instruments that open up uh, the most possibility as far as a musical future. Um, drums just teaching so much about rhythm and piano, um, you know, more than any other instrument, it's just kind of adaptable and requires like a really deep knowledge of the theory behind the music as well. I mean, it's, it's, a little bit beyond my the scope of my knowledge, but just to hear people talk about it, it kind of makes it seem like it's hard to attain, and it takes a lot of time to perfect that craft. So it's it's impressive, without a doubt. Especially just kind of coming in now, you hear about all these people starting when they're you know five, six, seven years old with the way technology is. But back in 2010, it wasn't as much available to you. One question we had too was um, to kind of talk about the origin of the name itself, the logo especially, and then kind of what inspired you to uh, to wear the I guess you could call it a helmet or that that panda head. Uh, the, the helmet's an accurate term, I'd say. Is it uh, uh, is it heavy? I guess that's kind of one thing I'd, I'd I'd have to ask. How does the uh how does it kind of stay on your shoulders the whole time you're performing? Well, I got a I have a few different ones. Um, the performing one is definitely the heaviest because it's uh, got all sorts of LEDs lining the inside, which and batteries and intake fans to keep it cool. So that's a pretty heavy helmet. Um, and, you know, I, it's got a head piece of headgear on it that keeps it secure, but 
Uh, that and a strong neck are about all I need. To <laughs> Get some neck, well your neck, neck um, exercises in. Yeah, yeah. I, I go to the gym and just wrap chains around my neck and <laughs> do just about nothing else. Yeah, see so one of those guys but, that we uh, take uh, videos of in the corner. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that you see on the Barstool Sports Instagram. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it's heavy. I got ones that don't have all the, the bells and whistles in them. If I'm just doing meet and greets or photo shoots or things like that. And, uh, the name and the decision to do it. I mean, the name came first. It was in college before I really knew it was going to become anything. Um, I actually don't, I wish I had a better story for the origin of it. Um, I, uh, used to work with a guy that was half Asian and I was white as, you know, all can be so <laughs> it sort of had that mix going for it um and the panda image just once we had the name ultimately decided to sort of suit up and and embrace the panda image um you know but when you when you're a dj you don't have as much visual appeal as some other artists up there like a guy shredding on guitar or on the drum set right. so a lot of times you want to create create some visual appeal so that you're not just a guy standing behind a table um and i think that was why I thought that uh, suiting up like a panda would kind of be a fun effect. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Did you have some help on the on the design, or did you do that yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a team effort. You know, I've got management that ha- helps along the way, and um, graphic designers that start the logo at a conceptual stage, and then prop builders that help mold things, and we go through different rounds and try different shapes, and it's, you know, there are a lot of people involved. I'm, I'm certainly not sitting around a uh, a pottery wheel creating this thing <laughs> in between working on track. Yeah, you can only have so many skills, all right? I mean, pottery and music—that'd be pretty impressive. Yeah. How uh, how did that? How was that transition for you then to be very music focused to then now on the the marketing end, the you know designing your helmet, all that stuff that goes you know, away from the music. What was that transition like for you once you started to gain some traction over the internet and whatnot? You know, for me, I've always had one eye on all the marketing behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of a a business-minded guy, and it's always, you know, you obviously got to make a good product, but so much of succeeding in this business is also about the brand and identity that you create and develop there, I'm not going to name names, but there are people in the electronic music community who barely do anything music-wise and are enormous presences because of social media campaigns and just um, marketing and branding and sponsorship identities they've been able to establish. So it's got to be a balance. You know, you really got to have good, solid music that people want to listen to because at the end of the day, that's what's going to get shared and that's what's really going to spread your name and grow your fan base. But you also want to have a story and a look and a feel and a vibe and all that. And those latter components require a lot of strategic thinking day to day and planning ahead and getting creative beyond just, you know, the notes you're playing on the keyboard. Yeah. And I think you practically just answered the next question I was about to ask you. But just for the sake of it, I think one of the hardest things that a lot of DJs who are DJing in college performing at college parties, frat parties, and, like, the local bars is to do is to really elevate themselves out of that scene. And what what is it you think that you did specifically to get you out of that kind of local college scene that you, you started out in? I would say 
I just trying to build your audience to be as mainstream as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're going around DJing college bars, chances are you don't have any fans and you're trying to make fans by putting on a good show in front of people who don't know who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of took a different route. I tried to let the world know who I was via my ethernet connection. Mm. I put my music out there and I put photos and videos and I sent them out to influencers and blogs and then got my fans and friends and community to help push all of the releases and all of the content that I didn't shot at being viral, which would lead to getting in front of even more people's eyes and ears and created the fan base that way such that when I went out and on the road to perform, people were coming to see White Panda because they knew who White Panda was. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like people would just happen to be at the bar because it was Saturday night and I had to prove to them that White Panda was someone worth paying attention to. I love that. Did you did you start wearing the panda head from day one or was that like a, an evolution type of thing? Day one, I've never performed without it. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it's like... It's in its like sixth generation right, right now, but I've never performed without without a mask or helmet or something on. Okay, gotcha. Do you have who were some of your like influences that wanted that made you want to get into into this space? Like good I know question. for me, da- Daft Punk was huge uh, because, for me growing up. I'm sure most Daft people Punk's too. Daft Punk's obviously a big one. I think I'm, when I started doing this stuff, it was back in like 2009. Mm-hmm. So there were guys that were sort of coming out guys like Avicii that were sort of just getting going, mm-hmm. you know, levels hadn't even come out yet. He was, it was still like bromance and very early things like right. Daft Punk's like discovery album would have been a good example. Yep. Um, Girl Talk was a big one for me because I came in, you know, doing oh, highly man. sample based content and I loved the album Night Ripper. Yeah. And I think it was actually like my realization that I could, make the types of mixes that he made in Night Ripper that really got me excited and got me moving early in the first place. Yeah, I would say Daft Punk, Avicii, and, and Girl Talk. If you could make a Venn diagram, I, okay. I, I would land somewhere in the middle. And that's where, uh, you know, White Panda's initial identity was kind of like the dance mashups. Like Girl Talk was mixing um, Dire Straits guitar riff with... Uh, you know, little Tim vocals and just like all over the place. And we sort of oriented a little bit more into the dance scene and went and we're putting vocals over um, some progressive house and electro house, which nowadays is commonplace. You know, right. you won't go to a show like that without, without every song having a vocal over it. Yep. But back in 2009, 2010, when I got started, that wasn't the case. You know, so much of this music was instrumental and, uh, you know, it might be a little bit presumptive to say this, but I like to think we—I was a part of that uh, that trend of getting recognizable vocals over dance music, and I think that's also part of the reason that White Panda has stuck around as long as it has, right? Versus sort of right. being a flash in the pan, which is so easy to be in the music industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think so. I, I the way I've seen it, I kind of started getting introduced to like electronic music around that same time. I'd say around probably close to 2011, but it's been incredible to see the changes and that time everyone was listening to dubstep and kind of progressive house and it's changed more now to big room had its thing and then deep house and now it's kind of into like reggaeton and trap music and do you think because you guys focused on mashups you were able to ride each and every wave and merge everything together in between i think that's a big part of it is that we were able to sort of touch on everything and remain dynamic as the 
what was popular and music changed and also to be aware of what was becoming popular and to gravitate to it um, early on. Uh, that was definitely a major thing and also one of the major challenges with developing original music because our fans were used to so many different veins. We'd sort of touched on everything, every type of EDM and mm -hmm. even back into like uh, like funk era hip hop and uh, classic rock. And so when we're trying to come up with an established original white panda definitive sound, that was a major challenge because it was like, where do we want to take this? Like, where do I want to end up um, given that I've had a little bit of taste to everything? And what would you say that that is now if you had to, or can you even put yourself in one single genre? I can. I mean, I would say that I'm, I'm still exploring. Um, the single I put out is, is sort of, has a, it's a little bit poppy, a little bit uh, future house, um, mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit of funk to some of the rhythms in it. And I have some other singles coming up that, that lean a slightly different way. But they all sort of have the underlying, like, positive, feel-good, up-tempo, party-type vibe to it. So less about exactly what genre they fall in and more about what type of energy and mood they represent um, yep. is where I'm trying to stay consistent. Yep, makes a lot of sense. And then what led into your decision to kind of break away from the mashup style and then really focus on creating your own music? Uh, a couple things. One was just the creative um, curiosity do to do it and see if I could do it and what it would be like. Um, that's a major part of it. Another major part is copyright challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, the streaming industry has made it difficult for mashups to really kind of live on the internet anymore um they obviously can't be on things like spotify or apple music unless they're sanctioned through everyone that has a stake in the track and that's writers producers artists and it's near impossible to pull that off um unless you're specifically commissioned to do it so yeah i mean it was partly wanting to try something new and partly the difficulty of getting mashups just where they needed to be uh, to get the proper exposure, because at this point, you know, your best shot is SoundCloud, and even that will sometimes, usually, pull them down, and you risk getting your account deleted, and right. it's just, uh, it's tough out there. So, speaking of the difficulty of creating mashups and kind of getting the the rights to them, more or less, talk to us about the Michael Jackson mashup that you were just involved in, because I can't imagine a more difficult estate to try and get rights from than his. They're so protective over it, kind of everything he's ever worked on. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, that's, I'll start out by saying probably the coolest thing I've ever been a part of in yeah, my career. <laughs> for, sure, um, for sure. They actually reached out to me. Oh, wow. um, it wasn't the other way around. So they came to me and said, you know, we've got this posthumous album we want to do. We want to promo it with like taking five of these songs, breaking them down to their component parts and creating effectively a new Michael Jackson song from them. That's and they said, we, we want you to come out to LA. We'll give you whatever you need. We'll put you in the right room with the right people and you need to do this for us. And I obviously wasn't going to say no to that, but like they <laughs> no, sent them over a hard drive with all these 
all these Michael Jackson original recordings, wow. unprocessed that stems that like I actually had to be supervised the entire time I worked on it because they had to make sure I wouldn't like take the snare from Thriller and I'll put it on the internet and sell mm-hmm. it for like a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, what would have happened so, if you lost that? Thing? Um, yeah, yeah I, did, I did put all my work onto a hard drive at the end of every night, wipe my computer. It was it was crazy, but you know it's reasonable precautions to take because the value of the materials that um, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to work with. But you, I mean, it just to be able to isolate some of those tracks and like, you know, you can isolate a track of MJ scatting in a booth um, on like Blood on the Dance Floor, and you know, you go through and listen to that, and you can like hear him breathing and like kind of cussing to himself after a bad take and you hear like Jermaine laughing in the background and to just sit there in a studio and listen to all those That's things. Amazing. I probably spent half the, half the time just being a little self-indulgent with it. Um, I don't blame you. But ultimately, yeah, ultimately like I thought it came out pretty well and I think the estate was happy with it. And if they want me to come back and do it again, I certainly would because it was a pretty unforgettable experience. And how did how did that experience affect you as an artist? It's humbling, I would say, just to be able to get my hands on some of the most iconic and historic recordings of all time. Um, you know, you stop thinking about what you being this guy on stage in front of thousands of people yeah. performing this dance music, and you start realizing, like, holy hell, why am I being trusted to do something like this? Yeah. Like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't belong here. Um, and it makes you want to work really, really hard to deliver the absolute best you can. Um, because everyone associated with the sounds you're listening to and the, and the project and are just such iconic people in music. You know, I was honored and it's, it's really, really humbling to be a part of a, an endeavor like that. Yeah, what a what a cool experience. I would love to talk a little bit about that as far as your experience from like when you started to where you are now and what some of our younger listeners, you know, I I have friends or whatever who are looking to get into the space and whatnot. And on the technical side, like where did you start? Were you just using like CDJs, turntables at first with, with a laptop and some software? Or, like where did you start out originally? Yeah, I started out just exploring Ableton Live. Mm-hmm. Um just an audio workstation and there are lots of different ones that people use um the cdj is sort of a different thing like that's more the performance aspect of it which um and less the producing um but yeah i just started going to ableton live watching tutorials downloading and working with synthesizers and um i'm sort of a teach myself kind of person i don't really go to like going to classes for things i'd rather just play around and figure it out I think sometimes that leads to happy accidents and discoveries that allow you to do things different um, yep. creatively. So it, for me, it was just hours and hours and hours of tinkering around with Ableton. And I still learn new things all the time. And more recently, have actually done some more formal training, at least in the form of like pretty advanced tutorials and things like that. Like you get to a point where you're not like, going to be able to teach yourself anymore when you get into pretty advanced techniques but um yeah just playing around in an audio workstation and getting a feel for it and trying to try to create sounds and rhythms that are appealing to you 
So you would so like to a young producer out there looking to sort out, you'd recommend Ableton Live as a as a good place to start. Yeah, I think so. Um, people use Pro Tools and uh, Reason, and um, are there other workstations out there? But Ableton Live is really the only one that I I know super well, and I so I'm comfortable endorsing it. But I wouldn't be comfortable endorsing any others. Gotcha. Now, from my understanding too, is as well, you can also do the recording aspect of it, but also f- on the performance side as well. It's a, it's another software you can use, correct? It is. Yeah, it's great for performance. I when I was performing very very heavily um, mashup style stuff, I was using Ableton a lot. I kind of as I got more and more dancey in the live show, I started sort of switching over to CDJs. But it can be. It can be great for performances, uh, regardless of of what you're what you're playing on stage. That's awesome. And then, how much of your input, like, do you have a team for for the visuals you create during a live show? How, how does that process look like for you? I've always wondered that. Yeah, it, it all depends. You know, you can be as, as involved as you want to be. Um, lots of different teams are available to create custom visuals like that. Sometimes all they need is in a perspective where you sort of say like this is our vibe and here's like a effectively a Pinterest board of things we like and they go out and do it for you or you can be much more hands-on and you know have them be sending you edits every day as they build it and make comments and request changes and um, when it comes to visuals I'm probably somewhere in the middle Um, I definitely don't just like say here are the keys make something cool but I'm also I try not to micromanage and trust that you know you find someone to make these things for you because you trust their um their creativity Mm -hmm. and so you don't want to like basically say here i trust you and then stifle it by changing every decision they make right what would you say is next for you coming up this fall do you have any stops planned or shows planned yeah i got a big tour coming up um keep an eye out we're announcing not too far off now i don't know the exact date but a large tour is on the way um accompanied by some new singles and uh some interesting visual content as well uh you know that we've been gearing up for a really really big end of 2018 and awesome in the next few weeks um it'll start and it'll be uh it'll be pretty non-stop once it hits so will this be the first solo tour that you yourself are headlining or have you been on other tours before I've done headlining tours before, but it's been a few years. Okay. Um, and this will be the largest one I've done in terms of, you know, just geographical coverage. Wow. You coming to Seattle at all? I'll be in Seattle, yeah. All right. Awesome. We'll have okay. to have you. Seattle uh... and, and Vancouver, I think, are both uh, are both on the on the stop. We'll have to uh, have you in the office. We'll show you around the city a little bit. Oh, yeah. We should do it. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So, uh, question for you. What would you say besides Seattle? We can we can leave Seattle out of it. What would you say your dream venue or festival or location um, anywhere in the world would be to play at? Ooh, anywhere in the world. Um, or we can keep it small. We can just keep it in the U.S. if that's easier. Uh, well, the easy answer is Coachella. It's one of the major festivals I've never played before, and it's a little bit of a rite of passage. So I would love to. Uh, to put out a few of these original singles and then take the new live show um, to the stages out there in Indio Absolutely. would be a great one. Um, I love playing in Chicago. I lived there for 12 years, so it always feels like a hometown show to me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I don't know if I have Coachella. Red Rocks in Denver Red would, Rocks. Be, would be another big one. Yep. Um, if we're talking specific venues, uh, might be a little bit out of reach at the moment, but Hollywood Bowl would be a cool one too. Oh, I, I don't think they do very many electronic shows there based on the setup, but you know, another venue that um, I've been to and really loved being at, and it'd be fun to be on stage seeing it from the other side absolutely i agree i i think i've been to coachella for a couple years now and i gotta say it's got i think it's probably one of the best festivals and weekends that they put together it's uh it's incredible yeah no doubt no yeah. doubt do so, you do you have a favorite person one that you've been on tour with already that you like to tour with slash who would you like to go on tour with next Ooh. um that's a good question. Well, believe it or not, about two years ago, we were I did a tour where Lav opened for us, and he had just released his oh wow um, debut single, which I think was the other. And uh, you know, he was such a Ari was such a nice guy to work with, and put on such a good show, and was so gracious and fun to have on the road. And then, obviously, in the months following that, took off to becoming one of the most listened to artists in the world on streaming mm-hmm. services. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, it was cool. It was cool to have been, to have had him on the road right before his big break. And, um, you know, he, he's such a pleasant dude. He's very genuine. Um, and the kind of guy that you really want to see succeed. So it's been awesome to, uh, to watch his sort of meteoric rise to fame. Um, cause he writes really, really good music and deserves it. That's awesome. So one question I had I mean, you've toured on, uh, been on a couple tours with some big names, but one that stood out to me in particular was Steve Aoki. What is it like yeah. being around his kind of um, presence, I guess I could say, on stage? Because I've been to a couple of his shows, and it, there's nothing quite quite like what he does <laughs> to the crowd. I just don't know how he keeps it up. Like, yeah. he... I get exhausted after some of these shows, long days and nights, and Steve seems like he never quits. Um, Every show or festival I've been on that he's at, um, he's gone 110% the entire show, 110% to the after party, and he just, you know, he's there before you, he leaves after you, he's getting after it the whole time. He's he's an animal. Yeah, I I think that's... Pretty good way to describe you can't it. describe it any other word. <laughs> any word for Steve Aoki. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So I guess one of the only other things I have for you is one of the like things that a lot of DJs do is they have that one surprise drop in the middle of their set that no one's expecting. Is there a favorite song that you have that you just love to throw out in the middle of your set that just gets the crowd going crazy? Um, it it depends. It's it change. I always do usually a couple times mm-hmm. and it's changed over time. Um, and it depends on the crowd, obviously. Of course. Uh, last few shows have been, I've been just dropping out into Papa Roach last resort, which has been mm-hmm. a fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll do, I want you back Jackson five. Oh, wow. another good one. that gets people going. Um, people just hear that sort of like, I can't, I'm not even going to try and, uh, but the first few notes of that song are right. so, so recognizable and, yeah. uh, um, you know, it's a way to get people really excited. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Well, I've got one last question before we let you go. You know, to our younger listeners out there, people aspiring to be in the music business, what what advice do you have to those out there who are, you know, looking to either catch a big break or get into the business? Focus on the music. Uh, focus on the product. You know, I know I mentioned earlier that social media and marketing is important, and it is, but too many people these days are just, like, trying to create something similar to what everyone else is doing, and then... Uh, outflank them with social media posting, and I just don't think that's the way to do it. I think if you create really, really good music, um, the internet has a way of discovering you. So um, really hone your craft, really find your sound, try and do something a little bit different from what other people are doing, and uh, deliver something good, and uh, it'll work out. Because people will listen, people will share it, and you'll be, you'll get found. I love that. That's phenomenal advice well white panda thank you so much for joining us you can catch his new single hands on me featuring loot available now spotify apple music wherever you guys listen check him out he's going to be on tour this fall you can follow him at the white panda music and hopefully all you guys will go see his show this fall and have him melt your face off when he drops i know we will papa roach because we will here in seattle (laughs) (laughs) all right man well thank you so much for for taking the time appreciate you yeah, thanks, fellas. I really appreciate it as well. Hopefully, we'll see you guys in Seattle in a few months. We'll okay, be in touch. Good talking to you. Good yeah. luck on the move. Have a good one.